Thanks be to God. Hey, good job with the thanks be to God stuff. You nailed it. My name is Jim, one of your pastors here, and I get the privilege of guiding us through this morning as we take a pause in our series in 1 John and have a moment where we revisit the vision of this church. I like to do this a couple times a year to remind us of who we are, what we're about, especially as we change seasons and we're coming out of our worship and wonder season and pressing into something, uh, uh, the new season of the fall when all kinds of people come back to town and life normalizes and we just need to hit a reset and remind ourselves of who we are and what we're about as a church. I want to start by telling you uh, about a time with my daughter. It was about 10 years ago. We were driving, uh, we, were, we were in the house, and uh, she comes up to me. I mean, the three-year-old version of my daughter, the cutest in the world, right? Her big eyes comes to me and says, Daddy, can we go somewhere? And I dropped whatever I was doing, and I said, yeah, absolutely. I want to absolutely go somewhere with you and be with my daughter. I thought I was killing it as a dad. Not only was I taking her somewhere, I was taking her to the zoo. We go to the zoo. I figure she's going to love it. And she bursts out in tears. She says, Daddy, I want to go somewhere. So I took her to the park. Again, tears. I want to go somewhere. I was very confused. So I took her to a pet store so we could look at the fish. I'm running out of options at this point. And she is furious with me. And she says, I want to go somewhere. So I just took her home. <laughs> I was exasperated. I didn't know what to do. Uh, didn't feel great about how I was doing as a dad. A couple days later, we're driving around. And she's in the back seat. And she goes, look, it's somewhere. And I look over. And there, sitting right next to our car, is Walgreens. Somewhere along the way, I told her, hey, let's go somewhere. And we went to Walgreens, and she understood somewhere as being Walgreens. And her dad wouldn't simply just take her somewhere, right? It seems like an obvious question, an obvious statement, let's go somewhere. But sometimes we use familiar language and we don't take the time to really define what it means and get specifically into what we mean, such as where is somewhere. And so this morning, as we reflect on our vision, most of this is going to feel familiar. We've spent a lot of time over the summer praying about giving specific language to name what it means when we say all of life is all for Jesus and seeking the shalom of the city, and, and what our vision is as a church. Now, this hits home with me, because around the, that time when I was driving around with my daughter, and I heard her say, let's go somewhere, and she would say, let's do something, it strikes me 
that I think that those were some of her first phrases because it's something she heard from her dad constantly. Because at that time, I was the most scattered human being that would bounce from idea to idea, thing to thing, vision to vision, and was always scattered and always saying to my wife, let's go somewhere. Let's move somewhere. In the course of a year, I suggested Washington, D.C., Denver, and Iran. <laughs> the, the Iran conversation took a little longer. Uh, at that time, I had three jobs. I was, uh, I was doing some like peacemaking work, some basketball scouting. I was a part-time pastor here, probably least interested in my work here. And I had all these hobbies and side hustles. I was selling this ancient Turkish art online. I was starting a homestay company for Saudi Arabian international students. And probably the craziest one was I, at that time, thought I had invented chocolate chip hummus and was going to bring it to the market and change the world. But the problem was nobody wanted it, and I wasn't the one to invent it. But I had all of these crazy dreams and visions, and none of them could hold my attention. And I was bouncing from thing to thing. And I remember even overhearing someone around here saying, like overhearing them talking about me and them saying, hey, let's get Jim involved with this thing. And they're like, yeah, but he won't be involved for, for long. He's just going to bounce from thing to thing, so let's not do it. I was so scattered until I started hanging around this church and I heard a passage of scripture that was often quoted. It wasn't something I was very familiar with. It, every year, somebody would preach on it. It seemed like a very prominent passage in the life of this church that was shaping the vision and the identity of who we are and described a distinct calling. And every time they talked about it, I leaned in as this passage mentored this church and gave a vision that so deeply captivated me that I was able to put aside all the chocolate chip hummus and all that stuff and say, I want to give my life to that vision that's flowing from that passage. And so that's what we are going to look at today. And that passage is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, which gives us this picture of God's people in exile and for, for decades has been the passage that has mentored our church and shaped our vision. And so let's dive into the passage today and remind ourselves of who we are and what we are called to. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. We'll start with verse 7. It says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pretty straightforward statement. God is using Jeremiah the prophet to speak to his people, the people who had been forcefully removed from their homes in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. See, in 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marches into Jerusalem, ransacks the city, destroys all kinds of the parts of the temple, steals some of the stuff. 
and takes about a thousand people from the city, including the key leaders, and marches them across the desert from Jerusalem to Babylon, which might be like modern-day Baghdad, where they would live as refugees. They would live as exiles in an empire that had come and separated them from their families and ransacked their homes. How would you feel if you were in that position? How would you want to relate to Babylon? How would you feel about the Babylonian people? Your mindset would probably be, I just want to get out of here as soon as I can. And at that time, there was a false prophet named Hananiah who was giving people a message of what they wanted to hear. He was saying, don't worry about it. We're going home soon. Soon enough, God's going to rescue us and bring us into Jerusalem and everything will be fine Don't settle down in here because God is bringing us back to Jerusalem. But the prophet Jeremiah has a different message. It's an unpopular message, but it's a message that provides the vision that God has for his people about how to live in Babylon, how to live while you're in exile. And here's the message. You're not going home soon. You are and your descendants will be here for 70 years. If you're an adult now, you'll probably never see Jerusalem again. But I have a vision for how you are to live in this city. And he calls them to be fully present in Babylon, to sink their roots into that city, to build houses, to plant gardens, to grow families, to settle into a long-term vision of seeking the welfare of that city and in the welfare of the city, finding their own welfare, praying to God on behalf of the city. Now that word welfare, it's the word shalom. If you've been around here for a while, you've probably heard us toss that out like more than like a a rabbi would, right? But here, this word is a potent word. It has this idea of wholeness and completeness, of well-being, of flourishing, the way God intended things to be. Flourishing in relationship with God, with others, with the physical non-human creation, And, and the vision that God has for his people is to seek the shalom of Babylon. This is scandalous. It's scandalous because in Psalm 122, likely a psalm that Jeremiah has in mind when he's writing, it's this psalm about seeking the peace of Jerusalem, your hometown, and seeking the flourishing of that place. And as they heard these words read about seek the shalom of, you would expect the next word to be Jerusalem, your true home, the place you love. But it says the city, Babylon. This scandalous invitation to love the very people who came into your city, ransacked your home, separated you from the people that you love and forced you to live as refugees. And God is saying, even in the midst of this, I am going to use you and I've got a plan for this city And I want you to learn to put your roots in and to love this city and to love this place. To mend 
the broken relationship with God, to live as a distinctive people that show what the true God is like in the middle of Babylon. Be conduits of physical and social and spiritual flourishing of this place, even though they were your enemies that forced you into exile. You hear the echo of Jesus in this. Hundreds of years before Jesus even stepped foot on the earth in his incarnation, you hear the echoes of what he is about. You hear the echo of Jesus saying, love not just your neighbors, but your enemies. Love the ones you are least likely to love and to seek their flourishing. And what was a wide lens picture in Jeremiah becomes even clearer when we see Jesus in his life as he steps into the world and shows what real shalom is. That in his presence is showing us who God is. That he's reconciling former enemies and making them brothers and disciples together. He's healing physical diseases and physical pain. And that in his life, death and resurrection is creating a way to be reconciled back to God. And with Jeremiah in one ear and the gospels in the other ear, we get this picture of what we are called to do is in the place where God has put us to sink roots deep and to seek the flourishing of this place, to seek the flourishing of the city. Now, what does this look like for Tempe? Redemption Tempe in our day. You know, we often talk about seeking the flourishing of the city, but sometimes can use pretty broad terms. But I want to give us some more specifics. So was over the summer in dialogue with you and dialogue with some of the other leaders, how can we crystallize our vision for the church that Jeremiah is mentoring us into, into a phrase? And here's what we have here. That our vision is to launch communities that seek the shalom of all people, places, and problems in our city by the year 2073. It means that in 2073, the dream would be able to drive around our city and that you could not find a single people group, like a group of people or a place or, or a problem that didn't have some group of believers who is intentionally looking at that thing and saying, I am going to seek the flourishing of this. Who are asking God, what part of this city do you want me to cultivate a garden of shalom within? That, that the center of mission isn't the church campus, but it's you as you scatter out to these various places, attentive to the garden that God has made for you to cultivate and seek the shalom of all people groups. It might be refugees or teachers at Marcos Deniza or engineering students at ASU, but all groupings of people have somebody, a couple of believers who are saying, I seek the flourishing of them. All places could be Dobson Ranch neighborhood, could be Arizona Mills Mall, could be Walgreens, could be the office where you work. All problems, whether it's homelessness or loneliness 
or addiction that you could not find a place where some followers of Jesus aren't present and saying, I am seeking the flourishing of this place, this group of people, this problem. Some of it's going to be launching RCs. Some of it's going to be prayer and action groups. Some of it is going to be organically forming groups together. And it's going to be bigger than our church because we can't do that just as our church did. We partner with other churches with that same vision to seek the flourishing of our city. Now, we may be asking, well, what is our city? Right? That seems like an obvious question, but it's not. This is one of those going somewhere type of questions where we're using the same language often, but we really don't define it. Here's what I mean. When we think of our city, is it the Phoenix metro area? That's probably too big. I don't imagine many people here live in Surprise and are seeking the flourishing of Surprise. But is it just Tempe? Is it just the technical boundaries of the city here? And if that's the case, what about those who are just across the street in Mesa, where there are some of the neediest schools that, that need people to pour into them? Are we like not allowed to do that because it's technically not Tempe? No. See, when God called his people to seek the shalom of the city in Jeremiah, he was calling them to seek the flourishing of a very kind of bound, specific, functional economy with clear boundaries like these big city walls. And that's not actually how we live and where we live. All of our cities, they kind of like bleed into each other, right? Like Tempe and Chandler and Mesa and Scottsdale, and you never know which one you're in exactly. They just sort of bleed into each other. And rather than responding to those artificial boundaries, we've been spending some time in praying and saying, what is our place as a church? Because we have people who are coming from Mesa, who are coming from Tempe. And so what's the functional city? Rather than having city walls like they did in the ancient times, a lot of our places are defined by transportation and roads. And what you see is the Loop 202 here seems to be where the majority of the people of our church live is within that Loop 202 there. And functionally, the Loop 202 can be like the city walls of our city. And our aim, our prayer is that everything within that, all people groups, all places, all problems would have a community of believers who are saying, I am seeking the flourishing of that. I might not be able to bring about the flourishing because that's in God's hands, but I am seeking it. And you'll see that where we are located is right in the middle of the Loop 202 with the 60 and the 101 uh, being right where we're at. Acts 17 says that God determines when and where people are going to live for the sake of his mission. And so we have to ask the question, why has God put us here in this time and in this place? And I believe one is it's to be a launch pad of shalom to all the places within the, the 202 loop there, about 10 to 15 minutes away from here. And secondly, this is a gathering place a gathering place where people from all different backgrounds and neighborhoods and economic leanings 
and ages can come together around the table and worship Jesus together. Redemption Tempe is located in the midst of this functional city to be a launch pad and a gathering place. Now, I imagine that there are some questions right now. Some, some of your folks who are like, hey, I love the fact that we emphasize Tempe. Are we still going to do that? Yes, I live in Tempe. We're still going to emphasize it. It's a big part of who we are. But those of you who've been like thinking like if you're seeking the shalom of Mesa that you got to like sneak around and it technically doesn't count as a part of Tempe, you are a part of this as well. For those of you who are looking at the technical boundaries and are saying, well, technically am I in because I'm just outside of it? Don't worry about all the specifics. The point is just to give us a general picture of what we are aiming for and what we're seeking the shalom of. But here's the question I want you to sit with. Is what is the plot of God's garden that he has given you to cultivate? What are, who are the, the groups of people, the places, the problems that he has set you up to enter into and to seek the shalom of? And how are you going to draw other people into it? And together, we seek the shalom of the city. Now, that answers the question of go somewhere. Where do we go? Here. But my daughter would also bring up the question, let's go do something. And so we had to ask, what does it mean to actually do something? To actually seek the shalom of this place. And again, Jeremiah mentors us and gives us some marching orders. Verse five and six, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Notice to seek the shalom of the city doesn't come with this grand strategy of taking the seats of power or some big flashy campaign, but it is about being deeply, deeply committed to the normal stuff of life. Gardens, houses, families, doing good work and building strong community. That should sound familiar. It's an echo of Genesis 1 and 2 where in the beginning, God creates the template of what humanity should look like. And he makes them to be created in his image and to do good work and to make families, to make human communities. And that as they do that normal, seemingly mundane stuff, God does the miraculous in caring for his world and caring for others and displaying what he is like. God displays his healing through the work of doctors and nurses and other medical professionals. His knowledge through parents and teachers and scientific discovery. He provides sustenance through entrepreneurs and truckers and quality control managers. That the very place where you are to pursue the shalom of the city, the flourishing of the city, might just be the work that you do day in, day out where you spend the, the, the vast majority of your life, the 90,000 hours of your life, not doing church programs 
And that's why we constantly say this phrase. Our, our mission is to make disciples who live all of life, all for Jesus. That's what we are about. It means that every vocation and occupation, every day of the week is an opportunity to reflect the character of God and to love others as we cultivate lawns and spreadsheets and raise kids and study for tests. The very stuff that shows up on your task list is a part of your discipleship and a way to reflect who God is and to seek the flourishing of your neighbors. All of life is all for Jesus. But there's another way that we pursue shalom as well. It's to be a distinctive community. Notice in verse five, there's this emphasis on marriage and babies. There's like a lot of words about that, right? Probably wondering like, what's that about? Is it just that God really likes babies and he wants to put a lot of babies in Babylon so they're not so sad? No. The message here is a call to create a community, a distinctive community that will sit in the midst of Babylon and show what God is like to live in the unique and distinct ways of God. And as they do so, it bears witness to the rest of Babylon of what God is like. He doesn't want them just to assimilate into Babylon, but to live in the unique ways that he has been training them in and that are talked about in his word. And as they press into those things, they will display the uniqueness of God. What does it look like for us to be a distinctive community. I mean, if we were to take the marching orders from Jeremiah 29 and just do it exactly like that, it means that we would all basically become gardeners and stuff, right? If we just go planting gardens all over the city, what's that gonna do? Some people would probably like it, but it's not showing a unique and distinct character that stands in contrast to the brokenness of the world. What does it look like for us? I want to give you one word. And. And. A-N-D. Like, wow, he really searched the dictionary for that one. <laughs> this is such a profound word in our day and in our place that I hope you get it tattooed on your forehead. We don't have tattoos. We got stickers out there. That's probably a good replacement. But the and is an important word because we actually live in a polarized either or world that is marked by dividing things that were meant to be kept together by tearing them apart. Groups of people who were made to be together, tearing them apart. Families that were made to be together, tearing them apart. Even ideas and, and concepts that were made to be held in beautiful tension together are being torn apart. Much of the brokenness and evil that happens in our world is not by people who are saying, I'm going to go do something evil, but it's taking one good thing that's made to be held in tension with another good thing and throwing out one of them and going all in on the other. And so what does it look like to be a distinctive People, it's to be an and people. It's showed by our geography. Go ahead and throw up the map again. 
This is a place where you can be an and people because it's a place where retirees and ASU students can come together. Doctors and electricians, large families and singles in their 20s, international students and lifelong residents, people from all ages and ideological leanings and economic backgrounds, echoing what it would be like in Revelation when all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations come together in worship of Jesus. And also, we are an and people when we hold commitments together that the world tends to want to tear apart. And so what we've done a bit this summer is written some and commitments, some and statements, concepts that tend to be separated, holding them together. Now, in future weeks, we'll talk about more of these, but I want to just walk through a few of them really quick. A lot of them will feel familiar, but the power in these is not any one of the words, but it's the way that they come together. So what would it look like to be a distinctive people? If we were a people of the word and spirit, deep commitment to encountering Jesus through both scripture and prayer with our minds and our hearts, work and rest, working for the glory of God and the good of others, but also having rich rhythms of rest family and hospitality, where we are committed to one another as family, deep brothers and sisters, but also extending a posture of adoption and welcoming others. Worship and wonder, where we gather corporately and worship together, but we scatter out into the world and encounter the glory of God and the simple things of daily life. To proclaim and to demonstrate, to verbally proclaim the gospel that Jesus is the way, but then to demonstrate that through lives of sacrificial love towards others, acts of mercy and justice, distinctive character. The biblical story and the personal story where we have a big vision of the world that narrates all of life in the biblical story rather than idolatrous stories but we also know our own story and have a sense of introspection and understand our gifts and abilities and our wounds that need to be healed. Stewardship and sacrifice, where we intentionally steward our bodies and our finances and our souls and our families, but we recognize that all of those things belong to God and weren't intended for us to become all self-absorbed with ourselves, with intermittent fasting and personal training and goals and therapists that never serve anybody else. You steward your life and do all those good things so that it can be poured out in sacrificial service to others. We cultivate all aspects of life so that they can be poured out as love for others. All of these things tend to be pulled apart and they give you a false choice of saying you either have to be one of those or the other, but the power is when you bring them together. There's one of these that I want to end on. One of these that I'm going to take a little more time on, our very last one, because I think it is very pertinent to who we are as a church and our time that God has put us in and some, some things we need to press into more. And that's this final one, staying and sending. We want to be a church 
that's a staying and sending church. We're called to be a church where we have deep community and sink our roots deeply into the city, into community, into friendships, and stay. Stay put in people's lives. While at the same time, a community that is called to be a sending community that sends people to places like Egypt or ASU students returning home or future church plants or people making a career move that is going to enhance the shalom of something else. People who stay deeply rooted here for the shalom of the city, but also send people out to pursue shalom elsewhere. Held together. Why is it important to be a staying church? Because staying is one of the most countercultural things that you can do in a world of drifters and wanderers, where people are just wandering from place to place and job to job and house to house and never sink in deep roots and are just trying to get a dopamine hit by another change in life. This is exactly what I was doing about 13 years ago when I was driving around with my daughter dreaming about chocolate chip hummus, <laughs> bouncing from thing to thing. And what this leads to is it leads to a culture of loneliness where there's not enough time to build real relationships. And so there's just pervasive loneliness and also a culture of fruitlessness when people bail on things before there's enough time for them to bear fruit. That there are the people groups, the places, the problems in our city that are going to require more than a semester of engagement. And oftentimes, we have a tendency to bail on these things because we get distracted rather than sinking our roots in deep and saying, this is a place for me. Rather than bouncing from thing to thing, we need to take this vision seriously that we see in Jeremiah of deep roots. Notice here in this passage, notice this call to a long-term vision of seeking the flourishing of the city. It's not just here, it's throughout Scripture. We see that God tends to move slower than we would like. That he thinks in often speaks in generations rather than quarterly or even annual increments. I mean, think about this, Jeremiah 29, where you tend to hear Jeremiah 29 quoted is when people graduate from college, they get a little graduation card, and it has verse 11, and it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. But nobody ever quotes verse 10, which says, when 70 years are completed. <laughs> this is to say, hey, God's got a plan for you and he's probably gonna accomplish it by the time you're 25. No, when 70 years are completed, it is giving a vision of saying, working for shalom over a long period of time and settling in and sinking your roots in deep. You probably noticed when I had the vision statement up, I said, by the year 2073. And some of you thought, like, 
He's just putting the goalposts way out there so he doesn't have to like report back or anything like that. <laughs> but what, what that's trying to do is to try to say, let's have long-term thinking. Let's think about generations beyond us. Let's think about pouring into something now that we may not ever get to see the fruit of. Wendell Berry is my favorite poet, probably the only poet I know. He's got this beautiful line. He's saying, he says, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest, that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. To plant a little sequoia now is to say that you will never see the full fruition of that thing. But it is still worthy to plant that sequoia that it might be a shade tree to the future generations. To seek the shalom of the city in such a way that when we show up in 2073, not many of us will be around, but the kids might be. And they might be able to drive around the city and not be able to find a single place or problem that doesn't have a group of believers who are deeply committed to the flourishing of that. It's to say that the results are in God's hands, but maybe, maybe in 2073, Asher Slobodnik, who's just now learning to talk, will be a wise older man who's a mentor in seeking the shalom of college students, just like his dad. Maybe in 2073, a family on the verge of homelessness will be carrying a couch into a new home, not even knowing that they're, they're able to get that home because of the work that the Affordable Housing Prayer and Action Group did 50 years ago. Maybe in 2073, struggling youth will feel like they have no place in the world, but are welcomed by Relly Fisterer and Nico Hansen and their big warm smiles that they've spent a lifetime undercutting the loneliness that is so prevalent in the world and seeking the shalom of those people. Maybe in 2073, a group of Afghani believers who were once Muslim but have come to follow Jesus will tell stories about way back in the 20s when a group of followers of Jesus poured into their life and planted the gospel among them and welcomed them and treated them as family. Maybe in 2073, Ellie Mullins, my daughter, will be able to drive around this city and see that every place is somewhere because every place belongs to God. And there's some group of people who are saying that place is somewhere to me. Now, I don't know the future and what things are gonna look like in 2073, but dreaming of things like that and working for things like that, of sinking in deep roots, 
is a worthy vision of giving your life to. So we are a church that stays, but also we are a church that sends. See, sometimes somewhere is actually somewhere else other than here. Jesus set the pattern of the church when he said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That every church is not just supposed to be about the shalom of its own place, but there's a part of the church that is always being sent out into the next place. It's the reason why we're here. It started in Jerusalem, and if they hadn't had this sending impulse, we in Tempe would not be worshiping Jesus apart from that. It's true for all churches, but I think it's particularly true for our church. Being so close to ASU, one of the challenging things, and I think actually one of the beautiful things, is that about a quarter of our church turns over every couple of years. As people come and they just take a couple years in this city as they get educated and then they launch off somewhere else, and this has been one of the hardest things for me. It's something I've hesitated embracing, but I think it is a part of our calling as a church. Before coming to Tempe, I bounced around. I was in about 36 different homes. And before I got captured by this vision of rootedness, I was bouncing from place to place. And when I came here, sensed this invitation to sink roots in deep and to build long-term relationships for the flourishing of the city. And my mindset was, well, everyone's going to do that, right? <laughs> and the hardest thing about being a pastor here has been over the last 13, 14 years, every summer or some point of the year, but at least every summer, there would be some people I've poured my life into who are being invited to step into something else. And it is brutal. And I noticed that there's something not right with my heart in relation to that. that. That I don't celebrate like I should. And a few years ago, I went and I wrote down a list of all the people I'd poured my life into but had moved away from Tempe. And when that list got to 300 people, I just stopped writing. And I broke down in tears and just called out to God and was like, it shouldn't be this way. Then I was just sensing that I need to take another look at the, the list. And when I look at the list, what you see is that so many of these people have been launched into places where they are seeking the shalom of somewhere else. And I have had the privilege of pouring into them and being a part of sending them somewhere else. And I think in this part of our church, this aspect, the sending aspect of our church, I have not done a good job of leading us in this and championing this part. And I think it, as I've reflected this summer, has roots with my own story, my own sense of abandonment. That when I was a kid, it, everyone who was supposed to play some key role in my life of caring for me abandoned me. My dad left my mom and, one of my, and cheated on her. And one of the first things, memories I have is of him saying that he was leaving home 
my mom disappeared for a few years. The grandparents that stood in the place of, of parents for me all died much younger than they should have. And I realized that when I came here, I, I, I encountered a sense of family that I had been longing for my whole life. And therefore, when it came time to send someone else out, it felt like abandonment to me. But as I've been praying this summer and asking God to, to give me the, the clearer picture on that, one of the things I wanna say to all of us, the many of us who sink our roots deep into this place, that it is actually a part of our calling as a church to be a sending church and that not all leaving is abandonment. Sometimes people are just tired of hot weather and going to a place where they like vacation. And I'll never stop talking against that. <laughs> but sometimes we have the opportunity to be a church that sends people out. On that list, I looked and I saw that people had taken jobs to further cancer research. And others had moved to plant churches in Tucson or Flagstaff, where others had moved to take care of sick parents, where others went to proclaim the gospel in places like China or in Turkey. And it is a gift for us as a church to play a role in their life and to send them out. This is us. This is what it means for us to go somewhere and to do something as a church. He's given a vision of launching communities to seek the shalom of all the people, places, and problems in our city by the year 2073. A mission to make disciples who live all of life all for Jesus. And a call to be a distinctive community, an and community in an either or world that sends and stays, that sinks in deep roots, but those roots grow broad branches of shalom for the city and for beyond. And so now as we come to the table and we take communion, I wanna let us know that while this is our vision and it is where we are going, right now, you need to go somewhere the somewhere that we need to go that fuels all of this, that, that drives us and inspires us and motivates us and gives us the strength to do it, is not by going to a particular place, but by going somewhere which is to the cross, where we encounter Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf, and that's what catalyzes us out. So it's time to go somewhere. Come forward and take communion. Take the bread representing the body of Christ poured out for you. Take the, the, the wine representing the blood of Christ poured out for you. And as you take those elements, know that shalom was seeking you in Jesus. And that's what sends us to go seek shalom in the world. Let's pray. God, we pray for your kingdom to come and will to be done in our little spot of the world. We, God, we pray for all of us to have a sense of the particular place or problem or group of people that you have connected us into and that it's not an accident. Show us what it looks like to seek the flourishing 
to seek the shalom of, of those people. And God, we pray now that we would have a real sense of the shalom that you extend to us in Christ and that it would launch us out. In Jesus' name, amen.